From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. This is part two of our live Q&A event at the National Football Museum as part of the Manchester Football Writing Festival. Thankfully, the sound quality in the second half is better than in part one, so if you stuck with us from then, thanks very much. We now hand you back to Rory Smith. Hello. I've worked out how to use my microphone now. This is very exciting. I hope you've enjoyed the break. Uh, we felt we should probably mention the fact that we're in Manchester, which is something of a capital of football this season with Pep and, and Jose both being here and Dave Flickcroft at Berry. Uh, and lovely man. This is very much a league of managers, the Premier League this season, probably for the first time. There is this sense that all of the best managers in the world, maybe with one or two exceptions, are here. And it's an age of quite iconic managers as well across the world. So I just thought I'd ask, is there any manager out there in England, outside England, whose work particularly appeals to you? Jonathan. I think most people probably know what mine's going to be, but it's not something who's in England. It's not something who will ever come to England, I'm sure. But myself would be Elsa. I mean, obviously, he's a terrible manager. That's, 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 that's the brilliant thing about him. He's a fantastic thinker. He's a fantastic man. Um, I, I, I gave a copy of, of Angel of Daybases to the historian Tom Holland. And Jonathan's written a book about Argentinian football. I don't know. He's, he's hiding it really well. <laughs> but if you want to hear more about it, come and hear us talk about it on Saturday. Um, and Tom Holland knows very little about football. But he, he said that his favourite character in the book was Bielsa, because Bielsa is the football manager that Jorge Luis Borges would have created had Borges written a short story about a football manager. And uh, it's, it's completely true. I mean, Bielsa is brilliantly bonkers, brilliantly idealistic, and his ideas just cannot work in the long term. But that sort of pursuit of perfection, that idealism, is, is in itself fascinating. And I think even fans of clubs he has managed... They sort of accept that. They're warm to that. So Marseille fans yep. want him back. You know, even though they, they ended up, you know, their form fell off a cliff that season. Those five six months when they were playing brilliant football, that was so energising. They want to go through that again. Um, it all went horribly wrong at Athletic, but I'm sure they would want him back. And those two games when they played United in the Europa League, are two of the yeah. two of the definitive performances in the last decade in European football. Mm-hmm. And Bielsa has had a huge influence on. Huge number of coaches, Guardiola obviously among them. And Guardiola's idealism, in some ways, I think, is what makes him, for me, the most interesting manager in the Premier League at the minute. I'm not saying he's the best manager, I'm saying he's the most interesting. Uh, his ruthlessness in pursuing that idealism, I, 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 in a more pragmatic way than Bielsa, I find fascinating. Jackie? Yeah, so my choice is, that, is another of those managers who is very much influenced by Bielsa, and that's Maurizio Pochettino. Um, I cover Tottenham for the Independent, which means you know I go to lots of the games and the press conferences, and I feel like I know him and the players fairly well. And po- I, mean, I think Pochettino manages to do something which Bielsa failed to do, which is to put those principles, that is, the principles that Pochettino learned when he played for Bielsa at Newell's Old Boys and when he played for him at Espanyol and with the Argentine national team, about that incredibly dynamic, exhausting, pressing football but to make them accessible for the new generation of players, that he gets on well with players. I think his playing career counts a lot with the players. He's a very, um, he's tough and he's very uncompromising, but he also has a kind of 
a human wall, which allows him to get his concepts through to the players, and it's created, you know, a good Espanyol team, a good Southampton team, and a fantastic Tottenham team, which, but for a little bit of bad luck towards the end of last season, would have won the Premier League. And yet, in every four season he's had at the club, apart from his very first Espanyol, their results in the final third of the season have not been as good as in the first two thirds. So I agree with you, he's closer to getting it right, but that, that process of, of um, rotating or adapting the model to, to cope with the frailty of humans, which is Bielsa's problem. I mean, Bielsa's great phrase, if only players weren't human, I'd win all the time. <laughs> they, they, they kind of are, that's, that's sort of the point. Um, Pochettino, I think he's close to getting that right, but he still hasn't got it right yet. Philippe, I think... Yes. I'm taking charge. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I must say that I, I will go for somebody I've got a personal affinity with rather than thinking he's the best, you know, tactically or whatever. The one who really um, I always look forward to listen to is Levin Village. Uh, is the one who is obviously somebody whose human qualities um, shine through and who also did an absolutely magnificent job at West Ham uh, and... Uh, in his, in his debut season, when again we were talking among ourselves, you know, things that we all get wrong, like Leicester is going to be relegated. Well, there were quite a few people who thought West Ham would be relegated as well, and we've seen the difference. So I would go for Slaven, uh, uh, just as a, a, his person, his character, and his warmth. So I'm, I, I might try and, and bridge that both are subjects. So the one I was going to pick, he's not, he's not even a manager anymore. He's a sporting director. He's like Bielsa. He, he's maybe more of a theorist than a kind of success, but I think Ralph Rangnick in Germany is an incredibly important kind of modern football figure. He's the sporting director at RB Leipzig now, he worked at Schalke at Hoffenheim, but most importantly he's kind of the father of that German school of pressing. So if you, if you consider the kind of lineage of Bielsa and Cruyff that led to Guardiola, that whole kind of theoretical school of football, there is another one that's developed in Germany with, through Rangnick with people like Jürgen Klopp, with Thomas Tuchel, with Roger Schmidt, yeah. that kind of generation of coaches who believe in this ultra-press. And Rangnick is, is a really interesting character as well. He too isn't like Bielsa. He's not really cut out to be a manager. He left Schalke because of stress. He, he's taken a back, a sort of a backroom role more with, with the Red Bull clubs, which are controversial. But he doesn't want to be a manager. But then at the same time last season, when RB Leipzig couldn't find the right coach, he just sort of went, all right, I'll do it. Uh, and I think that, that, in it, that makes him, like Bielsa, his flaws make him more interesting. But the other thing that's significant with Rangnick is kind of what he looks like. He looks like a geography teacher. And that's actually influenced the way that German coaches present themselves. And I think this is a really interesting thing about, about kind of England and what we look at as a manager. Because we all grew up probably with what Clough, Reevy, Shankly, Busby, these kind of... Fergie, these all-powerful despots at clubs, and that's what we think of as being a manager. And that's what, for a long time, we managers had to look like. And in Germany, it's totally different. Like, you've got to wear a like, you've got to dress basically a bit like Jonathan to be a German manager these days. And what, kind of, in the Premier League era, a manager is has changed as well. And that, it's a massive change in the last 20 years. When, when you, think, you have to think of the way managers are, are uh, the image of manager is, appears in in, in, in mass media. And we've gone from the era of the sheepskin and uh, wrong manager and um, Paul White. You should have said wrong manager. That would have been a brilliant answer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to, if you look now, you've got an ad for a betting website. The manager 
looks like Pep Guardiola or Jose Mourinho. So we've gone from one, one nature, one particular type of manager to the other, but it's like going you know, from east to west. Just one thing about Ralph Rangnick, I once had the uh, privilege of attending one of his seminars and can only say he looks like a geographic teacher, yes. But I was, like everybody else, totally enthralled by the way he was speaking in English as well, about particularly uh, hunting in, uh, in packs and explaining the, the principles of gig and pressing. Absolutely astonishing man. I think Rory made an important point there about the kind of managerial archetypes that we're wedded to as football fans in the UK. I think that we are, as much as we like talking about managers and discussing managers, what we really like is managers saying controversial things. Like when people talk about, when people talk about Mourinho, they talk more about his, the sort of stuff that he comes out with press conferences, his mind games, his feuds with Klopp, Ferguson, Wenger, Guardiola, anyone else. And the kind, whereas most, I imagine for most managers, particularly the modern managers who work in the Premier League, they would consider the, the main work they do to be work on the training ground, to be getting their ideas about football across the players. But I think that whole kind of coaching and tactical side, we, can't, we don't spend enough time thinking about in the UK. And this is, you know, this is a, a problem which has been very widely written about elsewhere, not least by Jonathan. Um, and that means that we have a kind of slightly skewed sense of what a manager should be doing, what a manager is famous for. And we don't really evaluate managers for the kind of nuts and bolts work, which is actually the essence of their job. Just one thing, talk about tactical. But asking tactical questions. I tried when I started, and I saw the looks I got from my, my friends from the tabloids. I shut up very quickly. But we, we just not this, welcome. We discussed this before, and I, I, Jonathan is going to make an interesting point that I can predict in about 30 seconds. But there is this idea that British journalists don't ask about tactics. We do. It's partly that, yeah, there is a section of the media that does not think there is an intro in why I played 3 4 3. But the managers hate talking about tactics. Well, Except Brennan Rogers, who always answered the first question at his press conferences by explaining his tactical system up to one point no, when Philippe Coutinho had scored uh, an absolute stonker from 35 yards, it was down to his tactical organisation. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's no Paul Lambert. Um, <laughs> the, but managers, foreign or, or British, you ask them a question about tactics, they will yeah. fob you off because they don't, they don't want to talk about it. I mean, there's... There's a couple, I mean, ABB did occasionally, which is one of the reasons why parts of me did turn on them, was they just stand and pour them. Um, Sam Allardyce loves talking tactics when he's won. The, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, sight, the sight of Sam after a big win, sort of sitting back, licking the cream off his whiskers. <laughs> uh, it was one of the great joys of the second half of last season. Um, but I, just the, the, the point about um, our, our perception here of, of what a manager should be, I think it's not insignificant that um, the, the, the you know, managers you mentioned, really, Clough, Bosley, Shankling, they're sort of in their pomp in the, in the 60s. Match of the day starts in 1964. So football becomes a mass television event in 1964. And so people suddenly start to see managers in a way, yeah, they, they'd seen them very infrequently before that. Suddenly they're there. Maybe not every Saturday, but, but many Saturdays, they become much more public figures. And so those four, I mean, obviously huge personalities anyway, but they come to dominate, you know, in just, maybe Bill Nicholson as well, as well or Harry Catterick. Um, so, yeah, maybe six, six managers in the late 60s who were all 
incredibly charismatic, incredibly tough, you know, very prepared to be, maybe not, maybe not to be controversial, but to put their view across. Um, Mark Morrison, I see, looking straight ahead of me, so yeah, another one who came along you know, soon afterwards. Um, but I, I think it's, it's the fact that that's the manager we got used to when they became, came on television. And obviously the World Cup in 66 makes football that much more popular, and so it gets more coverage. So I still think that dominates our view here of what a manager should be. But have we not seen an update for that in the Sky Sports News Age, where press, every press conference is on TV and presumably someone somewhere is watching for reasons that elude me? But <laughs> you, you, you see, I mean, Mourinho is the archetype of a, of a modern manager. That's what kind of everyone's meant to aspire to, his mastery of the media, which often is him saying something ridiculous and then other people being asked about it and getting annoyed because he said something ridiculous, at which point Jose Mourinho has won the mind game. <laughs> and, but that, that's kind of what we expect managers to do now. Yeah, but I think even, yeah, obviously it's evolved, but I think even the, 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 the fact those questions are asked, and it's expected that a, you know, um, the answers are given, uh, it's assumed there's some consequence to them. Even that is quite a British thing. If you, if you look at, at Argentina, um, do, do, do you know what the, the longest reign of a, of a manager of wrestling, so one of the big five clubs, um, a Pastorisa was is the longest serving wrestling manager. Do you know how long he served? Four years. In Argentina, the manager is just not that important. So the president's important because he's one of the money he buys the players. The coach comes in and he coaches a bit, but if he does well, he leaves after two years. If he does badly, he leaves after six months. They don't have, there's no expectation they should build a dynasty that clubs should formed in their image, as I mean, clearly did happen here with Shankly Liverpool or, or Busby United. Well, maybe, perhaps as well, well you, you would know that better than anybody else, Jonathan, but the first modern manager was an Englishman. Herbert Chapman? Absolutely. And you would know, oh, well, you've written about a few of these people too. You can make a case, I think I probably would make a case, that the very first manager is Tom Watson, who won the league three times for Sunderland, twice for Liverpool. Uh, Chapman clearly took that another stage, but anyway, I don't want to point the mic other than to say you're wrong. That sounds a bit like, <laughs> anyone who's ever spent any time with Jonathan knows that ultimately all conversations turn into him telling a story about hockey, uh, Sunderland, or his book about Argentina. But uh, he, and the Zambia national team. And the Zambia national team. He's right about Tom Watson, who was the secretary at the turn of the 19th and 20th century of Sunderland and who basically pioneered the, the very modern approach to football management of signing loads of players from abroad. Because he went, he basically was in Sunderland, so went to Scotland, got all the best amateurs out of Scotland, put them in the Sunderland team and created, was that the team of all the talents or was that the back of That team of all the talents. Uh, and then did that at Liverpool, although not quite as well. Well, what about the guy who was the, um, his name escapes me now, um, the uh, manager of Preston North End, the Invincibles? Because he did the same thing. He went, up, he went north of the border, basically bought Queen's Park, made them go to England and won everything in sight. Oh, the other he one was is, genius. who was the Middlesbrough manager? This is now getting really esoteric. I know, sorry. Who was the Middlesbrough manager in 1905-06 when they got done for bribing players? Who signed Alf Common? Middlesbrough basically, Middlesbrough Ionopolis were really do won the title but were really dodgy. Or maybe didn't even win the title. Didn't win the title. They were, won the title. They, silly. they were really, they, had, they were kind of paying players backhanders before it was trendy. But he, again, was a very modern manager. Right, we've disappeared down a rabbit hole. Let's take a question from Twitter. 
Um, Staff's Hatter asks, what are the panel's view on the trial of the under-23 teams in the EFL Trophy or the Checker Trade Trophy? Positive response from the floor. Jack Pitbrook. Um, I think it's... I don't think it's going to solve the problem, basically. I mean, I'm not... I'm not desperately morally against it. I think it looks a bit strange, but I don't think there's anything wrong in asking lower league teams to play against under-23 issues. I'm sorry, under-23 teams. The issue is that it's not. Re I mean, it's obviously not being done for the benefit of the lower league teams. It's being done as part of EPPP to make sure that players from the best academies, which is what EPPP is geared towards, manage to play more competitive football. But I think in in reality, it won't. I mean, because the the problems are far too ingrained when it comes to young players. Like ultimately, and this is this is the case at all the big academies in the country, 17 and 18 year olds pay £20,000 a week to not, in, in almost all circumstances, although there are, are obviously exceptions like Marcus Rashford, in most, they don't, they lose the mentality, they lose the right approach. And throwing them into a game against Crystal Rovers once a month isn't really going to create the right competitive environment and mindset to solve that. And it's being, um, it, it just isn't solving the problem that it was brought in to fix. Well, that's a much more measured response than, than mine would be, which is just, it's a nonsense. Um, whatever the issues of, I, I, I completely take the point that we need to get football from the 23s, but why would you spoil a perfectly good competition that you know, gives lower league clubs a chance of a, a day at the Wembley? That's a nice thing. You know, there should be some romance in football, and that seems to me a way of, of killing that. So I, I'm utterly opposed to it. Well, I think there was a, an excellent piece by Ian McIntosh on the set pieces, who's a, a South End fan, which, which dealt with this. But the issue to me is not someone who's, who's ever really thought about the Johnson's Paying Trophy and refuses to believe there's a company called Checker Trade. That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, it's the fact that... You, what they've done with EPPP, which I'm not necessarily against. There is a logic behind EPPP, and my whole philosophy with football is it's better to have a plan than no plan, which English football's approach in the past is just no plan, do not have a plan. But EPPP is taking the best players away from lower league clubs where they could conceivably play. You have this rich development system in the, in the football league, which I'm not calling it EFL, because that's also ridiculous. But you, there is no reason to stockpile these players and tell these 18, 19 year olds you can't play competitive football. Don't take them away from the smaller clubs. Or, and it's, it's not necessarily popular, sign deals between Oldham and Manchester City, whereby Oldham not only get the pick of City's best under 18s, 19s, 20s, but City install coaches, install facilities, where they effectively subsidise the club. Not so it's a B team, but just so you're, you're sharing more of that resource out. And then obviously if Oldham get promoted to the Championship or the Premier League, you cancel the deal, they can kick on on their own. You've got to have a greater balancing of resources rather than just saying, we've taken all the best players from the lower league, now we're going to ruin your competition just so that they can play. It's completely ridiculous. So basically you're championing the Roman Abramovich system here, where you basically, instead of helping the club, you can just buy it, like Vitesse, for example, and you send all your best, all your best young players there. Not, not necessarily the, the Chelsea system, He's trying to break down the Chelsea system whereby they've got 38 players on loan across mm -hmm. Europe. I would, I personally, and I can understand that there is, a, I totally understand that the opposing view would say that for clubs like Bury, like Oldham, like Stockport, that it wouldn't necessarily do them any harm to say, because all those clubs, loads of my mates are Leeds fans, 
And a load of friends had stopped going to Leeds because they couldn't name the team from week to week. They were getting so many loan players in for two months, three months, that you kind of, you were, you were sort of like, Adam Clayton, when did he join Leeds? I have no idea. And then he grew a beard at Huddersfield. And the, all these lower league clubs are reliant on loans. So formalise the arrangement, say that Oldham get to go to City at the start of the season and say, right, we'll take these six, plus a coach, plus you can give us a few million to upgrade our facilities. So that City know that their investment in that youth is, get, is being looked after and they're getting regular reports, but the players are getting regular football. That, it's not a B-team system. It's a, it's a little step towards that, but it, it maybe works better than what we've got now. But that's just a personal opinion. Uh, questions from the floor? There are lots. These are ordinarily telling me I'm a twice, aren't they? Thanks. <clears throat> I just wanted to bring up the topic of uh, grappling in the penalty area, which has been uh, talked about a lot recently. Um, I've got three points, and if you could respond to those, that would be great. Um, the first one is, before the corner kick or free kick has even been taken, it's, it's, it's happening, and, and people are saying you can't do anything about that, but I mean, surely you can book a player for um, ungentlemanly conduct by blocking another player before a ball's even cooked, before the ball's even kicked. And the second point is, if referees are going to give penalties every time there's just a slight shirt pull, it's just giving goals to a team and it's going to unbalance matches. Um, a suggestion could be a new rule whereby an indirect free kick was given in the area instead of a penalty, which is basically a goal, unless it was preventing a clear goal-scoring opportunity. If someone's about to head the ball in and someone pulls his shirt back, then that would be a penalty in my eyes. And, uh, and the third one is... I know this is not in the rules, but again, it would take a rule change, which is retrospective yellow cards, when a TV camera picks up players pulling shirts or wrestling players to the ground, they just get yellow cards after the game. What do you think about those ideas? Well, I think okay. we all volunteer, so they go on to, I think. Um, your first one, yeah, you're obviously absolutely right that a referee could show a card um, if uh, an offence occurs before it's taken. Um, I, I, actually, I guess what I'm going to give is a, is a coverall answer to all three points, which is, at least as now been recognised as an issue, steps are being taken to deal with it. I'm not sure it's ideal at the moment, um, but it's something. Let's see what happens. Let's see if it stops. Let's see if it calms down. If it doesn't, then I think you have to look at other options, maybe retrospective, um, you know, looking at video evidence, maybe that's the way to go. Although the reluctance of the authorities to bring that in, but the diving, which would seem to be an obvious um, case where video technology could be used, suggests it won't do that. Uh, I, I think, uh, although they're weirdly deeply unpopular, I don't understand why, but officials behind, behind the goals um, have, was it year 2008 when they were introduced? And the number of goals scored from corners increased in that tournament. And I'm sure that's because players thought were being watched. So, I think, I think the, the law is one of those things where you kind of accept that you're not going to punish 100% of offences, but you bring the level of offence down and you decrease the level of tolerance. And those two things together just make the game better. And if it's not entirely consistent, well, it's better than it is now. So I think let, let's see how this system works and then you move on from there. Well, the inconsistency for me were the most things that makes me enraged, and I know I'm a bit anticipating here, but. Uh, it's the notion of obstruction in the box, as though you know we've seen penalties given for that for obstruction. Have you ever but, but seen it, obstruction doesn't exist as an offence anymore? No. Well, <laughs> impeding. Impeding, which is now a direct free kick or a penalty. Not okay. 
Uh, when is the last time you've seen uh, a free kick being given for impinning a player when you're escorting it to the uh, touchline or to uh, the goal line? Never, is the answer. And it's, it's totally tolerated. So why isn't it allowed on corner kicks? I don't understand. Well, I don't understand. Don't look at me. <laughs> uh, let's have another question. Uh, Matt, take a pick. Hi, guys. Um, first point, just to put everybody's mind at ease, that Roy Carroll plays for Linfield. <laughs> I know it's been playing everyone's mind. Um, guys, earlier today I was listening to the conversion of Simpali from the Blizzard podcast, the, the one from Issue Zero, and it, apart from being an excellent way for me to spend 45 minutes doing nothing without my boss noticing, um, it made me think, has the sense of community gone from English football, or has it just changed into some sort of social media global behemoth? Uh, I think it's changed, absolutely, and I think the bigger the club, as a rule of thumb, the bigger the club, the less sense of community. Um, and I, you know, we, I, I touched on this earlier, the idea of going to watch Manchester United, going to watch Barcelona, being a, a tourist event, um, I think that inevitably diminishes that sense of community. The people in the stadium are no longer people you know, who were born within 20 miles of the ground or whose parents were born within 20 miles of the ground or have some deep sort of emotional or familial connection with, with the area. But, so you're speaking from, from my own point of view as, as a Sunderland fan, uh, I think the club's almost become more important in the sense of, in, in the sense of community. Uh, it, it's, it, it fosters, is more important now because there's nothing else. You know, it used to be that the, the pit or the shipyard provided that, that focal point even you know, pubs are dying out. You know, there's fewer and fewer pubs. The pub used to be the centre, um, and so the football club, certainly in Sunderland, is is pretty much the the, you know, the the one the one thing you can say. Yeah, that's the thing the whole town falls behind. Now I, I realise that's far from universal. Um, so I think it does totally depend where you are. Uh, I think one of, one of the things that is being eroded, and I guess, is connected with a sense of community is that the, the constant swirl of transfers, and this is a bit like the point you were making about Leeds, you're not knowing who's going to be there one way to another. I see someone maybe eight, nine times a year, and the first time I go and watch them each season, I spend half the time going, who, who's that? Yeah. Whereas, you know... Is it always Lee Catalog? <laughs> God, if, if only. Um, and, and, you know, Sunderland, I, I have to say, I haven't done the maths in the last two months, so I think... It is now, in the last six years, some have signed 76 players, I think. I th it, was definitely, it was definitely 68 in five, I think they've signed eight in this window. So, so I think it's, but yeah, that's, that's more than a team every year. So how can you, um, how can you get any attachment? I think you really saw that with, in the case of Lamine Kone, that some of the fans hadn't had a sort of cult hero, a, a you know, figure that everybody loved since Uluaka. Uh, and Lamin Kony turns up in January and he's massive. You know, the guy's nine foot tall, he weighs 25 stone, it's all muscle. He kicks a ball harder than a ball's ever been kicked before. <laughs> you see that volley against Everton last year. The fact that that net could retain that ball is testament to that net maker. <laughs> I, I lost that halfway through, but bear with me. Um, and then, you know, this season begins, oh, he's going to Everton. And it's just sort of, why, you know, why do we bother falling in love again? You know, you just, they just leave. 
And I think that's the real problem. But, but I think it's one of the reasons fans are now so quick to criticise players. Is you know they're not going to hang around. So there's no point getting attached to them. And I think that's, that's a problem. I think it's very sad. How important do you think the, the decreasing number down to zero, basically, of local players is at teams like Yeah, it's, obviously, it's completely connected. Um, yeah, something like Colin West. I mean, that's a very obscure song reference in the 80s. Colin West was crap. This big, lumbering, useless centre forward who did score twice against Chelsea in the 3-2 victory. Uh, hang on, no, it's like a 2-0 victory in the first leg of the Milk Cup semi-final in 1985. Uh, one of them a penalty, one of them a rebound from a penalty, I think. Um, yeah, I think we all know that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, he was hopeless, but he was local, so, you know, people gave him a free pass for a while. Um, I mean, you, you, you know, if you sign a player for five million, you don't need a free pass. You want, you want, want him to be good immediately. But then if you look at the, the, the clubs where the, the sense of community still exists, but places like Middlesbrough, where obviously the steel industries died, and the club, as in Sunderland, the club is is the only thing in town. There's no ICI have gone, and you know it's the, the huge areas of deprivation in, in Middlesbrough. It it can still exist, I think, and that's really encouraging. It's really important. The problem is that I guess in the good times, the clubs don't really, really care if it exists. I mean, I think, sorry, sorry. I mean, it, it certainly does massively stand out where clubs still have that bond. I and mean, one team that I go and watch quite a lot in my spare time is Dulwich Hamlet, who play in the Ryman Premier League. And they get attendances three or four times what anyone else in the Ryman Prem would get, you know, on a good 1,500 on a normal day, 2,000 on a good day. And, that in, and I think that's for, for two reasons. They seem to have a very strong bond with that corner of South London, which lots of other teams in the M, you know, basically within the M25 don't have. One is the community and charity work they do, for which they've won prizes in, which would shame an awful lot of professional clubs and clubs playing three or four tiers above them. And the other is local players, like most Dulwich players are from South London. And that makes, a, you know, that makes an awfully big difference to the area. And even players they have who've left and gone to go and try their luck in the Football League as professionals and hasn't quite worked out, they come straight back to Dulwich because they feel at home there. And I think that is, um, that's a rare thing and it's kind of interesting for being rare. And that is why they are probably the most popular team in the seventh tier of English football. Can I just say, I don't like them because they call them an enemy of football. <laughs> oh yeah, they did, didn't they? Another reason to support Dulwich Hamlet. Let's have another question. Just one thing about this local born players. I mean, um, local players. I'm not absolutely sure that it makes it's as important as you say. Uh, I'm talking here as an Arsenal guy. Um, the players whom you identified with in your community identified as true heroes were people like Patrick Gerrard uh, and Dennis Burkham, not born in Highbury. On the other hand, Ashley Cole was born in Highbury and Kieran Gibbs, and Paolo Vernadza. Uh, did it make that a special bond? I don't think so. Um, and also, what we say might be valid for the Premier League, but I would go with Jack on this one. Uh, football is much, much bigger than the Premier League, and one of the crimes of the Premier League is to make, make us forget that, is that football is far more important underneath. Matt, where's Matt with the microphone? Oh. Your hero. He's your hero, to be fair. Well, 
I, yeah, there's, there's two sides to that. I mean, one is I think you, you shouldn't underestimate how unpopular Tony Pulis is among West Brom fans. But they find his football very hard to watch. And the initial, oh, thank God we're not going to get relegated, has now faded into, we can't watch another week of this. So, uh, you know, I, I think it, it, it's, it's not... Well, have you ever watched West Brom? Well, to be honest with you, I've seen the new Yeah, I mean, perhaps, perhaps. Um, but I, I, the point I was making was more that if, if new owners come in and get rid of Poulos, it's not them acting on a whim, or not just them acting on a whim, it's them sort of responding to local feeling. I mean, I, I think Poulos is, is you know, a really, really good manager in his own way. Uh, I don't think he'd work with a, with a top side, but with the level of clubs he's worked with, I think he's done as well as anybody could do. Um, I find him a fascinating figure. Um, you know, the, the, the way he does press conferences, the fact he doesn't sit down, he just gets the thing done quickly. There's no flannel with this. It's just sort of bang, 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 here's my answers, right, I'm off. It's good, it's quick, it's efficient. And we that's need, what we need managers who also go and confront their, their players in the shower start naked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... Was he stunned naked or was he wearing the baseball cap? He's never been. He, was, he, was, he had a cap on and really bright white trainers. In, in, in Italy, they, they've got an, I can't remember the, the Italian word for it, ferryman is the translation. So it, it's, a, it's a type of manager, they call them ferry, the, the ferryman, and it's if you're Palermo normally, or like a team that's about to get relegated. There's is a reference to crossing the sticks yeah, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, okay. gets to the other bank. So if you're a team that's in. in threat of relegation in like January or February, you go to one of these grizzled, like teak-coloured, wizened, old sages of Italian football, and they get you out of it. And then in... then in Tregatatore, yeah. They, so they, thank you very much. Cosmopolitan crowd. And the, but they have the decency in June to go, all right, I've done my job. And then they kind of hibernate. And then in January or February, they wait for another team to be in the same position. And I think the problem with, for someone like Pulis, does, Tony Pulis is a brilliant manager at what he does. But, and it's the same at Stoke. Like, at Stoke, they got sick of him. They didn't want to watch that anymore. The people within the club, the fans. And yeah, you can go to watch what I see West Brom uh, four or five times a season. I can take that. But I, I would not want to watch it every week. And there is a lot of anger, genuine anger amongst West Brom fans. And I think there's a danger, like Philippe says, about them. Um, the Premier League kind of skews our perspective. Like, Van Hals United were bad. They're not Pulis' West Brom bad. They're not, they're, there is a different level of badness. Yeah. And Pulis' West Brom at the bottom of it. And I think I the mean, problem is that if, if he came in, worked for six months a year, like a sort of Marks and Spencer Santa Claus, then, <laughs> then it'd be fine because no one had had time to get sick of him. But because he insists on hanging around, then you sort of think, after a while, I don't want to watch this anymore. I mean, West Brom were the only team in history to win a game 2 1 with only one shot on target. That was against Arsenal last season. That's absolutely true. Uh, we're running out of time, so more questions. Anybody? Matt, go on. Um, you spoke about managers before. Um, is Arsene Wenger busted flush now? <laughs> you look like Parky when you do this. George Best. Um, did you say washed out? A busted flush. Well, I don't have your accent. You say a busted flush. Okay, a busted flush. 
Um, oh God. Okay. Um, this is the uh, private Chatham House rules klaxon, my dear Gareth. No tweeting. No tweeting. Uh, sorry, it was a bit too long as well. I completely agree with Philippe, uh, particularly on the point that this might be the year when Arsenal don't finish in the top four. I think that they're finishing in the top four repeatedly over the last few years. It, it looks like consistency, but I think in reality, there's been quite a lot of good fortune that in any given season, other teams who should be doing better than them have happened to do worse for specific circumstances. I think that, unfortunately, there's nothing that we've seen since Wenger signed his last contract in 2014 has suggested that it was the right thing for Arsenal to give him that deal. I think he is, unfortunately, slightly outmoded in modern football, uh, particularly tactically. I think that you watch Arsenal and there's no clear sense of what they're trying to do on the pitch. Like all the other... Premier League managers that we ran through earlier are guys with very, very clear you know, philosophy, identity, whatever, but they know what they want their players to do. Whereas at Arsenal, they're just going through the motions. And the problem is they've had, you know, they've had the transitional seasons, they've had injuries, they've lost players, but they've actually had stability behind the scenes for about three or four years now, and, and they're not really any better. And their second place finish last year, I think, was a bit of... That was a fluke, basically, because Tottenham, for reasons Jonathan talked about earlier, couldn't handle the last six games of the season. Um, but, I mean, I think he is, and he is obviously a busted flush. Obviously, they're not going to win the league or the Champions League again under Wenger. And obviously, they'd be better off with a different manager. Well, I hope this is going to be the moment which makes us, um, you know, when we, we are, are, what did you say? We never win with kids moment. Mm -hmm. I hope that's going to be the case, but I don't think there's much chance of it happening. Really. We'll take a couple more questions, but the one, the one thing I do think on Wenger is... They might, have run out, they might have run out of alternative managers. There's, there's not an obvious, all the, the obvious replacements have gone. But the, the other thing is because he stayed, Arsenal missed on the most natural manager for them, who was Pep Guardiola, yeah. who was, honestly, everybody who was vaguely close to the entourage, the people of Pep, uh, he would have taken the job. Yeah. Definitely. Thank you. Um, hi, everyone. Um, you said how we're, um, well, obviously we're in Manchester, and um, there are a lot of clubs here uh, beyond Manchester United and Manchester City, not that the global audiences might be aware. Um, I myself am a Berry fan, for my sins. You've been mentioned tonight. I know, been I have. I know, that's, I was quite impressed. <laughs> um, but when you, when you look at a map and you see how many teams just in Greater Manchester there are, uh, my biggest worry for us is how... It seems like us having a football club is unsustainable in in this modern era, and I was wondering what you, as a panel, uh, would say would suggest that clubs like Berry could be doing. I know you've already touched on uh, some B team idea. I'm not sure that would go down very well in Gig Lane, but um, how can a club like Berry, like Oldham, like Rochdale, how can these clubs actually continue to survive when you, at a, at most of them are at risk of? going completely bankrupt at, you know, at a moment's notice. I and mean, you see someone like Bournemouth, which for us was quite galling, seeing a team what we see as a statue like ours, going up to the Premier League, but then you see, as you said, behind the scenes, there's, you know, there's money coming in, and at the moment's notice, the, the plug could be pulled and, and they could be doing a Portsmouth or something similar. So. We, I suppose you can pray for a Russian. That seems to be the modern way. I think there is, it's not something I subscribe to, but there is an argument that there are too many professional clubs in England that realistically, if you look at the comparisons with countries of similar statues, or similar populations, that England can't sustain. It's not even 92 now, it's about 
There's, there's only about six semi-pro teams left in the conference. There's professional teams, I think, as far down as the conference north and south. That, that's a lot. And Germany got, I think, maybe 40 professional teams, 40, 40 maybe 50. That Italy do something similar. I think that they're, and again, it's not saying I subscribe to it, but you have to kind of accept the reality, unappealing and unappetising as it might be, that the days of Berry being able, teams like Berry being able to kind of move up and down relatively freely through the leagues are not over, but it's getting, it's going to be harder and harder and harder and harder because you look at, we talked about this last night, but the 120 million quid spent in the championship this season, this summer, of 200 million quid spent in the championship, of which 120 million is the three relegated teams spending their parachute payments. And as, the, as that happens more and more, the teams who've never been there are kind of blocked off. So I guess what you do is you turn yourself into a community institution. You, you become something that people build around and a focal point for a, a relatively small local community and you maybe separate yourself from the idea that, the dream that, one day you'll be in the Premier League, which is quite sad. Isn't that Yeah, I guess so, yeah. That's, first and foremost, that's probably what it should be, but then there's a lot of other stuff that's attached to being a football fan and every football fan dreams. That's, the, that's kind of what gets you through it, to be honest. And it's not like being a community club and being ambitious and not mutually exclusive. Like, that's, that's based, I mean, that is in simplified form, the story of Swansea City over the last 10 years. And, you know, that, that is often a better kind of re rebuilding with sound principles is a, is a more effective and efficient route for a struggling League One or League Two team to take than you know, throwing £5,000 a week at someone that used to play for Bradford or whatever. I think as well, um, Ian, uh, in his piece, in his pieces, he was taking the example of Southend as, as um, well, he's taking Southend as the example of how fans can serve a need, get things wrong. Like, what happened the way they treated Paul Stark, which is absolutely appalling. Uh, he was the man who took them to the first final in their history, and he was sacked, I think, eight days before the final, and the fans were saying, well, it's more important to reach the playoffs and try to get promotion. No, of course it's not. It's far more important to travel to, to, with 40,000 fans to Wembley. That's far more important. And when you get to the final, people actually laughed at him. So the problem was not just the fact that the Premier League and all these nasty people, it's also the fans. They've got the, the mentality here perhaps has been affected in the way it shouldn't have been. That's, that's come from, from the Premier League, it's come from Sky, it's come from the media. It's the idea that that football is a means to an end, that it, you have to be going somewhere at all times. You, you don't. You don't. I, I, one of my best mates is a Bournemouth fan. He was devastated when they got promoted. Just in the championship, they were winning most of it. He wanted them to be top of the league until April and then finish seventh. Because if, you, if you're kind of in the championship, you're winning more often than you're losing. You get to go out with your mates, it's all a bit cheaper. But there is this drive within football that you have to be going somewhere. You, you kind of don't, not really. You can just enjoy it. I mean, we, we talk about this as if this is a purely football issue. It's a general economic issue. That if you look at um, how the rich have got richer and the disparity between the rich and poor has increased since the mid-70s, it's ex football moves it exactly. There's a sense that you, you can't be content with what you've got. You can't be comfortable and give a bit back. You've got to always be getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And football just follows that. So, I mean, it, it, that doesn't help Bowie. Um, but, yeah, that, that's, that unfortunately is, is the world. Uh, let's take one more question. Oh, it makes me feel really bad. There's loads of hands. 
Hi. Um, I've just finished reading uh, The Dirtiest Race in History um, about the Seoul Olympics in 1988 and Ben Johnson. Um, and this might be sensitive, so I don't want any, anyone to end up in legal trouble. Stop tweeting. <laughs> but what you, um, you obviously have some exposure to um, the side of football that we don't see. Do you think there's any possibility of a, a story of doping coming out in the next 10 years or ever, given the amount of cover-up that's gone on? Jack. Um, so, there are kind of two different issues there. Like, will a story come out about doping? Uh, I don't know. Um, the, there hasn't been as much exposed about doping as you might expect so far. Um, and I mean, clearly this is an issue where journalism, I mean, there has been some good journalism on doping, but journalism as a whole hasn't made the kind of inroads or the, hasn't had the successes, if that's the right word, that doping about, sorry, that journalism about doping in cycling, athletics, baseball, or whatever else has had. Um, on the other, what I think is the kind of question behind your question is, is there football in doping? Sorry, rather, is there doping in football? Um, and, sorry, can, can this bit not be tweeted? I mean, part of, the, part of the problem is it's kind of in nobody's interest to reveal it. You know, the, the players aren't going to reveal it, obviously. The clubs aren't going to reveal it. The leagues don't want their product being tainted by it. So, I mean, I guess it is up to journalism. This comes back to the point you were making before about the cost of investigative journalism. And with something like that, if you're not, not merely do you have to be 100% sure, you have to have proof that will stand up in court or you're in massive trouble. So it's, it's a hugely difficult thing to receive and, and receivable proof, which is not the same, not quite the same thing. I mean, Think what, of what, what, you know, what happened to the, the guys like Pierre Ballester, who was on, on Lance Armstrong's um, track since the beginning. It cost him his career. Imagine if you're attacking not one individual, but one of the greatest clubs in the world. I mean, you've, seen, you're dead. you've seen in Spain with Daniel Messi's tax case, the suggestions, I mean, I, you know, I honestly don't know about the Spanish tax system, but suggestions that only went to, to trial because one of the judges was connected to Real Madrid. Now, when you get vested interests like that, that stretch throughout society, it becomes almost impossible to, to, to chase down. And I think, I mean, the, the, the book you mentioned, Dirty Space and History by Richard Moore, is fantastic. So I'd recommend you read that if you've got any interest in, in sport. I mean, it's just a brilliant book. Um, but I, I think it's also interesting, uh, in 2001, um, don't tweet this, but I'm pretty certain I'm right. Edgar Davids and Frank de Boer both tested positive for Nandrolone. And, and Stam. And Stam, yeah, yeah. Um, but the point is, who did, who did de Boer and Davids play for? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Barcelona, I guess, that question. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Pep Guardiola had. Issues. I mean, I, I think he failed the test, but somehow got it overturned. So no, 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 no. He failed it. He failed it twice, but he got the legal decision overturned. But he did pursue Different. that case with astonishing vigor, and the sort of vigor that, that it would be a weird thing to do. He was fighting it four, four or five years after the ban had been served and it was all done. He didn't want that stain on his character, which would suggest a man who believed in his own innocence, or, or it would suggest a man who was desperate to enter a new career. But you see, I, during the Olympics, when you when you watch, probably it's revealing the fourth wall, I was WhatsApping Jack quite a lot through the Olympics, uh, and Miguel Delaney, who's a friend of ours, uh, about the fact, and Miguel is very much what you might term a doping cynic. Miguel 
Miguel's pretty sure that like, like me and Jack are doping, and <laughs> that Gareth's doping, and he just thinks everybody's doping Basically, all the time. Basically, if you get up before at two in the afternoon, you must be doping. Yeah. Uh, and every time there was a gold medal, you get these WhatsApps from Miguel saying, fucking hell, there's no way that's real. And you, you watch, like, Laura Kenny, like, Jason Kenny and Laura Trot, and like, I don't know them as people, obviously hugely dedicated athletes. It's really hard to look at them and say, that they are, this, this young, dedicated couple are going back to the velodrome in East, in East Manchester and thinking, right, got that done, pulled the press, let's jump myself full of EPO. It's, it's really hard to believe that they're doing that. Like, it takes a massive leap to look at those people and think they are not only cheating, but knowingly cheating. And I think that's one thing that might be an issue in football, is that players take loads of pills and loads of supplements. They're reliant on the doctors telling them that it's the right stuff. So with at Juve in the, in the 90s, when, I mean, again, we're not tweeting, but they were doping, they were obviously doping. I, I think, I think you, you can be quite I think, you, I think we, that. we might even be allowed to say that. Marseille were doping. But do, you, but do you think the players believe, the players knew what, yes, what they were doing? Yes, absolutely they did. Uh, I've talked to, to Mark Hakeley, I've talked to, to Tony Cascarino about it. Um, they absolutely knew it. And um, they, the thing, the example I always take is that when something is impossible to believe, it's because it's impossible to achieve. Players who are running on the 95th minute or the 120th minute, an extra time, at the same pace, the same acceleration, same sprints as they were when the game had just started, are on something. And that's that. So no names, no need to give any names, but we know it happens. The uh, testing policy of UEFA and FIFA is risible is in you know, the front to, to, to sporting equity compared to other sports, in particular to cycling, and now tentatively uh, athletics. Football is years and years, years behind. The interests are so big. Do you imagine that UEFA wants a club that reaches a Champions League final to be shown as uh, that they've been doping for years? Of course not. Um, the, the stories, we've all heard stories within the press box, and you probably have heard them too, they filter out. We know who the suspects are, and we have got good reasons to believe that those suspects are indeed culprits. But we haven't got proof. And because we haven't got proof, and we won't be helped until somebody like USA there does exactly the same thing with football as was done with cycling, we will not know and we will not be able to tell. Yeah, I mean, people often use the phrase, too big to fail, in this kind of context. And when, I mean, before Lance Armstrong went down, there hit this kind of aura around him. People thought that he would be kind of impermeable forever on this on this particular case and he wasn't he went down but i think like that you know the being the best cyclists in the world is one thing being the biggest football clubs in the world or the best footballers in the world is quite another and i think that that gives them that doesn't exactly fill you with confidence about the ability to get proof for what may have happened or may have been taken this is quite a depressing way to end things so i'm gonna ask one more um Doping obviously is a major issue. There's lots of little issues in football that are really irritating. Is there any tiny issue that, in, in a way that is completely out of proportion and causing to question your character and perspective online, annoys you about modern football? Jonathan. Okay. Um, the homogeneity of the nets. Okay. So it's a big one. We've done him hard. <laughs> what? When, I, when, I, when I first. When I first went to, to Roker Park in October 1982, 
Yeah. A lot of people say when when I mean I, I, Nick Hornby and Doofus said you know when he first went to Highbury the thing that struck him was the greenness of the pitch. But the thing that struck me about Rugby Park was the net. The net was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. It's like this bridal veil hanging off this beautiful red A-frame. Um, Steve Williams scored into it almost immediately for Southampton. Um, <laughs> and it was, you know, there was, it was it was an incredibly beautiful thing. When you went back and, and you saw it on maybe on a foggy day or when it was a little bit drizzled and you had these, these little diamonds of water on this, on this net. And that was a gorgeous, gorgeous thing. And you looked at other nets and you looked at Newcastle's nets and they weren't as nice as ours and that was a good thing. But you could, if you, if you showed me a net, hang on, certainly in 1984, if you showed me a net, I could tell you which ground it was from. <laughs> like, if you show me a net now from 1984, I still reckon I, I, I have a, a decent guess at it. Um, you should not be saying this in public. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you, you saw, I remember when Dundee United won, won at, the, at the Camp Nou, and I developed a theory there was to what, 1984? Five? Six. That was 86, I think. It was 85, 6 in the US Cup, was it? Okay. 986, as I was saying. Um, when, when, when Dundee United scored those three goals in the Camp Nou, and two of them were from narrow angles. And I, I've had this theory that the reason that they were even shooting from narrow angles was because the net went back for miles. It gave us optical illusion of it being a bigger target. Uh, Benfica had massive... They went back for miles. And Wembley had these had green stanchions. So it was neutral. And it was very neat. And it was very sort of... Had an elegance as Wembley should have, and um, yeah, Sunderland in the early nineties they, they got rid of the, the, the beautiful bridal veil and they replaced it with these sort of um, the, the nets made by prisoners of Durham Jail. And they, I think we're, we're running running the risk of this becoming a history of nets. <laughs> and they, you know, they, they, they 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 were slightly ragged. They were. They were like the tattered You've not even mentioned the nets in the 94 World Cup, which were the greatest nets of all time. No, 996 in Mexico were the greatest nets of all time. Which has rendered your point moot, Jack. But anyway, the point no, is, they're all the same. No, no, no. Jack. So, since that 20 you coronated the fact that the, the net was not broken by the shot, is that, is that one of the reasons why you're so nostalgic? Would it have? Your, 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 def your defender, who, you know, you said... Kone. Yeah, Lincoln. We're talking about this magnificent shot. Oh, yeah. If that had been in those cheap nets we got from Durham Jail in 1992, that would not have held that. <laughs> exactly. We were doing so well. Jack. Well, I've got nothing nearly as good. I think there's one, there's one thing that slightly annoys me. It's the um, club social media accounts, of which there are so many nowadays. And obviously every club has its own army of journalists who you know, create their own content. And you know, some of it's quite interesting, you know, behind the scenes cameras and so forth. And you know, Manchester City did tunnel cam, which was really, really good. And it's, it was so good that everyone else in the Premier League has ripped it off. But one thing they do, and this is really minor, if you spend all day on Twitter like me, you're confronted with this stuff endlessly. And it drives you slowly insane. And it's clubs making images from press conferences or from anything. Like, basically, the theory goes, if you put a picture on social media, it will get shared more than if you just put words. And that means that whenever anyone connected to a club says anything, they have to produce a picture of it with the words on of what's being said. But the problem is, so they're putting quite a lot of work into it, but it's always incredibly banal. And that means that you're sitting on Twitter one morning, scrolling through, seeing if there's anything interesting, and you're just bombarded with pictures of Mike Freeland's face with words on it saying, we want to take this momentum into next week. And, 
uh, and it's something to do with the kind of earnestness and enthusiasm, but also the banality of the words, which kind of slowly chips away at you until you have to unfollow. My least favourite thing about modern clubs is the capitalisation of the word club. You do not need to do that. Stop doing it. It's really annoying. But my other thing, it wasn't really the mispronunciation of Juventus. Brian Moore always used to call them Juventus. And even as a child, I thought, Brian, that's not what they're called. <laughs> and you, you did do classics at university. I did. And that, that's not the only reason. I'm just a, I just want people to give people their proper names. But it's, um, so everyone hates diving, except Jack, who is correct not to hate diving. I hate players claiming throw-ins and corners that they know are not theirs. And yet, they all do it. And you all do it, as fans. There's, a, there's an entire stand at Arsenal that genuinely believes they've never given away a throw-in. <laughs> and yet, no, they don't, there's not campaigns in the Daily Mail saying, rid, this, rid the game of this scourge. It's, just, it's the same as diving. It's trying to deceive the referee. It's not your corner. Just accept it's not your corner. <laughs> Philippe. Yes, well, no, I entirely agree with you. Throw-ins are a bit of a... I've got a problem with that. And my, bigger pro my biggest problem with throw-ins is players who have considered the throw-in the referee and the line assistant, well, the assistant, sorry, has indicated the ball should be their positions. And the defender takes the ball, and instead of giving it, he walks back with it, and then he does this little thing like that. And the ball goes, <laughs> and so the, guy, the other guy has got to come and pick it up. We've wasted time. It's terrible. I just wanted to bounce on what, um, so to speak, um, what Jack was saying about uh, social media and clubs. There was one uh, a few days ago, I don't know if you've seen that from Mansfield Town. Is it, it's going to become a classic. Um, they were uh, advertising 140 characters, free beer. At, at, uh, there will be a limited amount of free beer uh, at the ground for our games against something. But the way they had, they had phrased it, they said, um, one call girls will distribute free beer. I don't know, I said, what? One call girls? So you thought either they don't know they're single or they're plural and they have a serious problem. They hadn't realized that it's the name of their sponsor, One Call. One Call, that may be the idea of calling the call girls, maybe not necessarily a good idea. So they had to uh, rectify their tweet. And if you go to Mansfield, then it might still be there. It's quite fruity. Sorry, can I just leap in with a very brief Mansfield story? No. I, I went to Mansfield. <laughs> Is it about Nick's? I went to Mansfield once uh, for going into Carlisle. And I was doing a piece of Michael Knight, and that's why. And they had a draw at half time. And this is, this is completely true. The prize for the raffle at half time was a copy of uh, L. Ron Hubbard's book on Scientology. <laughs> don't, know, don't know how to respond to that. Genuinely. What's the, what's the monster called in Scientology? The king, no like the king monster. I, I know that the L stands for Lafayette. L. Ron Zenu, there you go. Some Scientologists in the house. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, right, on that religious uh, bombshell, uh, you can sign up for Scientology on Dean's Gate. There is a church of Scientology in Manchester, surrounded by weirdos. Uh, thank you very much for coming. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, thanks to Jonathan Wilson, Jack Pickbrook, and Philippe O'Claire. Thank you to the Football Museum for having us and to Matt for organising the Manchester Football Writing Festival. There's loads of brilliant stuff for the rest of the week. Come to more of it. Thank you very much. And thank you, Rory Smith. <laughs>